0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial
3: subsidiary. Of the BBC. <laughs>
4: The plan to rescue vaquitos from the dangerous waters within the upper Gulf of California began with trying to find them. They're small animals that are living in a pretty big body of water. You know, at the time of the operation, we thought there were about 30 porpoises left. And so just finding them was going to be a big challenge.
2: Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that's tracking down some of the rarest animals on the planet and doing our best to bring them back from the brink of
4: extinction. I'm Emily Knight. We knew how quickly the species was declining, so we knew that this was was kind of it. We might not have another chance. We knew that just in a matter of years, the species could disappear. In this episode, we're meeting the animals under threat
2: the people trying to save them, and the species which might just be able to make a miraculous comeback after all. Our first story is about a marine mammal that you might not have heard of. It's a tiny porpoise, the smallest member of the whale family. You could fit one in a bathtub. Not that you should. It's called the vaquita, and they live only in a small strip of ocean called the Gulf of Mexico, or the Sea of Cortez.
3: The vaquita is one of the smallest cetaceans in the world. It's uh, one and a half metres long, and females are a bit larger than than males.
2: This is Lorenzo Rojas Bracho, the head of the Mexican government's Marine Mammal Research Group. Although his work with vaquitas has earned him something of a
3: nickname. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Vaquita. It's cute. It's a very cute animal. It has black patches around the eyes and the mouth. And so many people call them the panda of the sea. It has kind of a smile and and, and this black mask that makes it a very uh, attractive uh, animal. And I think one of the most attractive cetaceans in, in the world.
2: The vaquita are in real trouble. They're about as close to extinction as you can get.
3: Our last population estimate is less than 20 with probably around nine or ten animals. And that's, I think, the saddest part of my uh, professional life.
4: Vaquitas are disappearing primarily because of gillnets. That's Dr. Cynthia Smith,
2: the director of the National Marine Mammal Foundation in San Diego.
4: A gillnet is basically a mesh net, but in general, they're very indiscriminate. They basically will kill just about anything that's in its path. The vaquita get caught in these gillnets, and unable to reach the surface to breathe, they drown.
2: Part of the tragedy is that the gillnets are not there to catch vaquita at all. In fact, today, gillnets are not even legal.
4: There have been different types of gillnet uses, but the one that is the most problematic today is due to an illegal fishery that is for the tatawaba. The chihuahua is kind of like a large sea bass, and so it's caught, and then the swim bladder, which is the organ that helps the fish control their buoyancy, is cut out and dried and then shipped to different parts of the world. A lot of the product goes to Asia and is sold on the black market, and there's thought to be these, you know, magical properties and for all different sorts of reasons, um, people consume it, but there's no scientific basis behind any of that. Even though the government of Mexico has banned the use of gill nets in this area, there's illegal fishing activity that isn't paying attention to the law, and they are unfortunately causing this rapid decline of vaquitas.
2: There's big money on the black market. Totoaba swim bladder is worth more by weight than gold more than cocaine. And for people like Lorenzo and Cynthia, trying to stand up to a huge network of organized criminals has put a target on their heads, too.
3: The first time I was threatened, I didn't realize it was a threat. I had a phone call and then they asked me if I was uh, Professor Rojas. He said I'm a member of a drug cartel. And and I was surprised, I didn't know what to say. And he said, well, we know where you are, your family. And I hung up and called the police. He said he was going to, and I don't know, this is a good word for radio, but beat the shit out of me.
4: They were threatening to burn down the facility, and pretty early on we got a a good sense of how dangerous this work was. With Vaquita numbers so critically low,
2: Cynthia and Lorenzo launched a rescue operation, with the hopes of catching one and keeping it safe in a specially designed ocean enclosure. If they could keep one in captivity, they might be able to learn enough about them to save them, maybe even start a breeding programme. The first step was to track one down in the open water.
4: Many days went by before we actually spotted a vaquita once we got out on the water. As soon as the wind starts to really kick up, the waves that are created will completely camouflage the dorsal fin of a vaquita. They're so small. We were definitely starting to get nervous That we weren't going to actually be able to find them within about a week we had our first sighting once you spot them you got to keep up with them they kind of meander they'll come up and take a breath and look like they're heading in one direction and then (laughs) they'll surface somewhere completely different when we caught the first animal um, you know there's there's a lot of emotion that that rushes through you and it was it was like electricity that you you could feel it going through the whole team there was this just tremendous amount of relief that we might actually have a shot at saving the species and it starts with that one animal
3: i was nervous i had never done anything like that i mean catching anything except the cold, so it was completely new for me. My heart was bumping, bumping, and, and when we catch it, it got even worse. And we were clapping and embracing everybody in the boat that we were, just happy that we were, caught the animal that we thought it was impossible to go. I mean, it was a very, very joyful moment.
4: We transferred her into a, a container that was filled with water to try to keep her as comfortable as possible. And the whole time she just, she was doing all of the things that we were hoping she would. Her breathing was calming and she was, her heart rate was stable and she looked to be comfortable. And so we were optimistic because we thought, well, perhaps she's resilient and perhaps a very good candidate to attempt this kind of rescue operation with. We were releasing her into a sea C-pen enclosure where we could very readily see her and also very quickly get to her so that if she didn't acclimate well to that situation, we could get hands-on and then release her back to the
3: wild. The moon was still up, and it was a gorgeous moon illuminating the ocean. And I remember the words of our Danish friends uh, in the radio. She was saying something, come on, little girl, you're doing fine, you're doing fine and then suddenly everything changed.
4: Not long after we introduced her into that enclosure, she started to show signs of distress and we made the decision to release her. Unfortunately, during the release, uh, she was clearly in distress and she circled back to us and at that point she needed emergency care and, and attention We did everything we could for her at that point, uh, but unfortunately, we lost
2: her. The team didn't know this at the time. No one knew this at the time. But it turns out that Vaquita are susceptible to a condition called capture myopathy. Put simply, some animals just can't survive being in captivity, no matter how kind their captor's intentions. Their stress levels rocket, their blood pressure goes up, and their hearts begin to fail. It happens to some deer species, lots of birds, even primates under certain conditions. And out there in the middle of the Sea of Cortez, it happened to this vaquita female.
3: And there was this hope that it would not die. But then it passed away and it was horrible. We were destroyed.
4: The one thing that we look back now and are grateful for is just the fact that we were able to do so much, learn so much, from her even though we lost her. Although this story
2: is a tragic one, it's not over yet. Lorenzo and Cynthia and their teams haven't given up hope. Although they're no longer attempting to capture a vaquita, the
4: effort to save them is still ongoing. I think what helps me hang on to hope is the fact that the animals are still having babies and that the geneticists are saying the species is strong enough to come back if we can just remove the threats. That's a huge piece of information to build upon, but then that creates that laser focus then on the threat. How are we going to eliminate that threat? And that has to do with putting an end to this poaching situation, to the illegal fishing that's happening. And it has to do with international collaboration between countries. And so, yes, I have hope. I I know the animals can do it. They're fighting. They're resilient. They're strong. We need to be the same.
3: We know now that vaquita is a very resourceful animal. And if we stop killing them, they will come back. We keep optimistic that the animal will recover. We will not see it in our lifetime, but at least we will know that it has this chance to come back and and show the world that everything is possible.
2: If you want to see the shy, elusive vaquita for yourself and watch Lorenzo and Cynthia's heroic attempts to save them, there's a film about it that you might want to check out called Sea of Shadows.
1: You're listening
2: to the BBC Earth podcast, where today we're seeing what can be done to save the species that are in trouble. Our next story comes from Dr. Samuel Ramsey, a researcher from the United States Department of Agriculture,
0: who studies... I've got so much honey, the bees envy me.
2: <laughs> honey bees. Sammy keeps bees in his lab, and he likes to sing to them.
0: Somewhere deep down, there is a part of me that thinks, you know... They might actually like this. Maybe this is de stressing them just as much as it's de stressing me.
2: And although singing might not be the best way to do it, de stressing bees is not as silly a task as you might think. Bees, as you may know, are in trouble.
0: Honeybees are facing an unparalleled number of issues all at once. Pesticides are a big issue, but they're not the only one.
2: You might have seen the headlines. Beekeepers around the world opening up hives to find the workers gone. It's called Colony Collapse Disorder, and although it has one name, it's a mysterious condition without one single cause. Pesticides, a reduction in available plant species, viruses, poor genetics from inbreeding and on top of all that, there's the thing that Sammy is really interested in, parasites. Organisms that live off the bees, who can only survive in bee colonies.
0: I've been fascinated by the concept of symbiosis since I was a little kid. It is one of the first subjects in science that really got me excited because you've got these organisms that have a close relationship with another creature that's from a different species and it's become so close that either both of the creatures need each other or one of the creatures needs the other in order to survive. Because I used to raise insects and watch their interactions between species, I would think about it from the perspective of these two organisms that have just been put together. What could potentially be going through their minds, how they're trying to manage this potential relationship that they've got with this new creature that they're just meeting. I brought that into looking at these Varroa mites.
2: Varroa mites, also known by the intimidating scientific name of Varroa destructor, look like tiny reddish-brown spots, And they can cause all sorts of problems for the bees. They can struggle to fly properly, lose weight, and die early.
0: So when you hear Varroa destructor, I want you to think of an organism sort of like a tick. For the vast majority of the time that we have been studying it, so decades and decades, we have thought that this parasite was sucking out the bee's blood. Sort of a a weird little mosquito kind of thing where uh, it removes a little bit of blood, And we were confused as to how the removal of a small amount of the bee's blood, also called the hemolymph, would cause all of the pathologies that we've been seeing in honeybees over all of this time. So it was an ongoing mystery. And there was this nagging question. This nagging question?
2: Only a hardcore entomologist like him would stay up late thinking about this
0: their excrement just didn't seem like the sort of excrement that you would expect from a creature that was feeding exclusively on blood. The weird part about it is that it was made up of all of these purine crystals, this this crystalline substance that you typically get from the breakdown of proteins.
2: As so often happens in science, the solution to this perplexing question came to Sammy not in the lab, but in a chance encounter.
0: I remember going home after, you know, kind of dealing with this mystery in my mind for uh, several hours uh, in the lab. I remember going home and talking to my dad and my dad saying, Sammy, oh, Lord, the doctor tells me that I got gout and I don't, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do about it. He says I need to change my diet, but uh, I changed my diet and I still got gout. Sammy, I'm going to need you. As my scientist son to explain to me what's going on here so I did what any good doctor would do at this point you know I googled it and uh, I found out that gout is actually the result of the byproducts from the breakdown of a huge influx of protein into the human body and it breaks down into these purines that crystallize and unfortunately they build up in, in places like the joints and it can be very painful for people
2: When we digest purine-rich food like red meat and organs like liver, a waste product called uric acid can build up in our blood, form into crystals and cause agonising pain in the joints. Those purine crystals in the mites' excrement that so confused Sammy in the lab, well, here they were again, causing trouble in his dad's joints.
0: But what really came to mind there immediately was the fact that the varroa mites, they're feeding on the bees... And somehow they're getting a huge volume from the breakdown of their food of the same stuff that my dad was getting from the breakdown of his food. And it left me with the question of, I wonder if the mites and my dad might be feeding on the same food, pretty much.
2: And this is where it gets really interesting.
0: At the top of every list of what you shouldn't eat if you have gout, it's always liver. And that was really fascinating to me. It was Something that really got me thinking, okay, so what's the bee's liver? It's called the fat body. And is it possible that the mites might be feeding on that tissue?
2: Spotting this connection between the high purine diet of Varroa mites and the diet of his dad was only step one. Sammy launched himself into years of research and lab work, collecting data and testing theories to figure out what was really going on.
0: Now, fast forward a good three years and it turns out that that was the tissue that they were feeding on. I was able to um, show that conclusively through the work that I was conducting, but it actually changes the way that we think about dealing with this parasite, managing this parasite. It also changes the way that we think about how our bees are dealing with it. If we're going to help our bees deal with these problems, we need to understand exactly what the problem is to find that it's cutting its way into the bee's body with these serrated, creepy-looking mouth parts, releasing a very large volume of saliva into the honeybee's body cavity that's breaking down the liver of the bees, the fact that the saliva persists inside of the bee's body and remains bioactive, continuing to break down tissue. The bee's liver is a very limited resource. It's not going to grow back. The amount of it that that they lose, unfortunately, is a deficit that will be shown throughout the rest of that bee's life, and so it shortens the bee's lifespan. It makes it more difficult for the honeybees to overwinter, which is a very important process in the temperate areas of the world where our bees are living. There have actually been a number of changes to how things have worked since we have figured this out. And one of the biggest changes is that it's really convinced a lot of beekeepers that Varroa Destructor is actually the problem that we've known it to be for some time. A lot of beekeepers were not treating for this parasite. But it really concerned beekeepers to actually hear what this parasite was really doing. So the great thing about this is that now in taking this parasite more seriously and also just better understanding it, beekeepers are better equipped to deal with this parasite. My research showed where the parasite is most likely to be found on the bee's body, where it's feeding. And so beekeepers are less inclined now to think if they don't see the parasite in conspicuous parts of the bee's body, that it's not present in the colony. We know what tissue it's impacting, and knowing that gives us a better idea of how to mitigate some of the damage.
2: Varroa mites are a huge threat to bees, and one that isn't going away soon.
0: The vast majority of colonies in the US have these parasites present, and it's less a question of if but when that parasite will show up. It's all over the world now.
2: But understanding how they live and what they eat is a huge step in controlling the impact they have on honeybee populations. And Sammy's dad was the key to this discovery.
0: Every time he hears me give a presentation about this, he's like, well, I'm glad somebody benefited from this whole situation. We did uh, as the scientific community. The great part about science is that it is a progressive system. Everybody builds on what everyone else has done before them. And so the work that I've done, people talk about it, quote unquote, saving the bees. Um, The work that I've done is not going to save the bees. I'd like to clear that up right now. Uh, Science is an iterative system. We build upon the work of others. So it's possible that work building on this work and building on that work and building on the work after that could be very integral. Uh, to helping honeybee populations. But no scientist is an island. No single discovery does it all. Every discovery is built on discoveries prior to it. And so uh, it's exciting. It's even more exciting to be a part of that process than to have done it all myself.
2: With the help of some clever science, we might yet save the bees. And with hard work and a lot of good fortune, we might just save the vaquita too. But there's one set of animals that we can't save. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, as we all learned in school, went extinct long before humans even existed. Or did they? For our final story today, we've got a little bit of unlearning to do.
5: The idea that dinosaurs went extinct is just kind of ingrained into us, right? Like, all the dinosaurs went extinct when the meteor hit the planet. And it's something that is just hard to wrap our minds around, the fact that birds are actually reptiles.
2: Birds if you didn't already know, are arguably dinosaurs.
5: There are more than double the number of species of birds than there are mammals. So when people say, like, oh, the Mesozoic is the age of dinosaurs and the Cenozoic is the age of mammals, I'm like, please, this is still the age of dinosaurs, okay? But it's hard for
2: many of us to see it that
5: way. After all,
2: birds have come a long way from their dinosaur origins.
5: Birds today are just incredibly unique organisms compared to all other living lineages and pretty much every part of their biology has been modified for flight in some way because flight is the most physically demanding form of locomotion so you know their reproductive system has been modified their respiratory system digestive system they're the most highly modified group of reptiles and of course this is why it was difficult for us to realize that they are in fact reptiles
2: jingmei o'connor is an avian authority She's also been nicknamed the punk rock
5: paleontologist. I named a species after Greg Graffin, who is the lead singer of Bad Religion. It's not something well-deserved. I'm not really a punk rocker.
2: She's been working in China, the best place to work as a paleontologist right now.
5: I commonly describe China as the 21st century mecca for paleontology and people ask, you know, well, why are all these amazing discoveries coming out of China now? And uh, there's a couple reasons for this and one is that places like Europe and the United States, they had their golden age in the 19th century, when you know people were going around and collecting these big, beautiful T-Rex and other things for all these new natural history museums that were opening all over America, China has only recently reached a point of economic development where paleontology is becoming very popular and common.
2: One of the most important areas for finding fossil deposits is in the northeast. It's called the Jehol Biota. The fossils found here are helping Jing Mei answer one of the oldest questions in paleontology, how birds evolved from dinosaurs. In
5: 1996, a farmer is working on his land and he finds the first feathered dinosaur. And this specimen preserves what we call dino fuzz. So they're more like a hair than something that we would think of today as a feather. And this specimen is published on the cover of Nature Magazine, which is where every scientist wants to publish. And this sparks this enormous amount of interest in these jet hole deposits. And then in 1998, a dinosaur named Codipteryx is found. And this dinosaur preserves feathers that we would recognize as modern feathers. And not only does it have modern feathers, but the feathers are arranged on the forelimb, forming something that looks like a wing. However, it's proportionately too small to be used for flight. But what these two discoveries showed us was that feathers and also wings were features that are not unique to birds, but actually features that birds inherited from dinosaurs.
2: Paleontologists had been arguing about the lineage of birds since 1861 when a fossil of a strange creature with what looked like wings and a tail was found in Germany. It was named Archaeopteryx, meaning ancient wing, and it caused a lot of confusion. No birds had ever been discovered from so far back in time. Some people thought it might be an angel, but others thought it could lend weight to a new theory that had been published just two years before, an upstart new idea called the theory of evolution by natural selection. The scientist Thomas Huxley said Archaeopteryx proved birds descended from dinosaurs, but this idea was just a little too radical, and it was shelved for over a century.
5: In the 1970s, the idea that birds are living dinosaurs was resurrected by an American paleontologist, but again, it's met with a lot of resistance based on the fact that no fossil dinosaur had preserved a wishbone or furcula, which is of course something that is present in every bird.
2: Even when dinosaurs that did have wishbones began to be discovered, scientists still weren't convinced. But the new evidence from China was hard to ignore.
5: It was the discovery of feathered dinosaurs that provided very strong evidence, like just irrefutable evidence, something that not just scientists, but even lay people can look at and be like, yes, you know, we see the connection between birds and dinosaurs. It's something that cannot be denied. And this American paleontologist who, you know, who had resurrected the hypothesis that was first put forth by Thomas Huxley, he was quoted as saying, I've been saying the same damn thing for years, you know, just look at Archaeopteryx. So the fact is that, you know, Archaeopteryx is really everything you need to know to understand the dinosaurian ancestry of birds.
2: But even with that evidence, there was still a problem. The most bird-like dinosaurs ever discovered were from the Cretaceous period a time when birds themselves had already evolved.
5: So people were arguing, you know, the dinosaurs that you are claiming to be closely related to birds are way younger. So how could birds have evolved from a group that doesn't appear in the fossil record for, you know, another 70 million years? And this was referred to as the temporal paradox.
2: As one paleontologist put it, you can't be your own grandma.
5: The temporal paradox is something that has only been effectively closed very recently. And this is from specimens from China that are about 161, 165 million years old. So they're just a bit older than Archaeopteryx. But it is from these deposits that we find these small feathered dinosaurs that look very, very much like Archaeopteryx, maybe very, very closely related to birds, maybe the group of dinosaurs that birds evolved from, but not birds.
2: So you've got winged dinosaurs that aren't birds, and birds that evolved from dinosaurs. Thankfully, the discovery of those feathered dinosaurs, ancestors to Archaeopteryx, slotted neatly into the evolutionary timeline. And most paleontologists wave goodbye to the temporal paradox problem. So it's settled then. Dinosaurs didn't go extinct after all. They evolved into birds. Of course, it's not really that simple.
5: When we say that birds survived the end Cretaceous mass extinction, it's actually not really true. I mean, birds survived, but not all birds survived. There were all these other lineages during the Cretaceous. There were the Enantiornithines. There were the Confucius Okay, I'm not going to list all these obnoxious names. But there were all these other different lineages that were also living side by side, but all these modifications that we see in living birds evolved slowly during the Cretaceous evolution, so not every lineage had the complete set. The complete set was only present in one group and this probably helped them to survive the devastation of the meteor impact.
2: So at the time of the meteor, there were lots of groups of animals similar to birds, but only one group that survived the impact. And after the mass extinction of so many of their competitors, this group was free to balloon out into the 11,000 species of modern birds which fly around our planet today. But while the evolution of birds can be understood as a straight line, extending back through prehistory, the evolution of flight itself is a much more convoluted
5: story. It wasn't just the
2: ancestors of birds which pulled off the trick
5: birds are not the only dinosaurs that evolve flight. Actually, flight evolved in the dinosauria at least four times is what we guess. But this is something that we've come to realize in the last five years, and it's based on discoveries that have been made within the last 20 years. Actually, flight has evolved multiple times in dinosaurs and each time taking a different pathway. So for example, in the Scansoriopter rigid lineage, which are the oldest flying dinosaurs, they've Probably didn't fly very well, and they had some kind of primitive gliding behavior similar to, say, a flying squirrel. And then you have the evolution of birds, and they fly with wings formed by just the forelimbs. And then independently, you have a group of dromaeosaurids that evolved to fly with wings on the forelimbs and on the hindlimbs. And then there's the fourth hypothesized occurrence of evolution evolving within dinosaurs. Rajo Navis, similar to Archaeopteryx, with a long bony tail. However, uh, unfortunately, we have no idea how it flew.
2: The final mystery is why. Why did flight keep evolving in dinosaurs so many distinct times?
5: It's a very, very good question, but I hate when people ask it because I don't have a good answer for you. And uh, I know I shouldn't feel bad about not having the answer because the fact is that, you know, this is something that we are just only very recently coming to grasp with, so we haven't really had the time to investigate this properly. And honestly, it is really mysterious because it's not like the niche of the air was unoccupied at the time, so therefore dinosaurs could evolve into this niche and take advantage of resources that were not being utilized. That was not the case. You already have this incredibly successful and diverse group of flying reptiles, the pterosaurs. So birds and other flying dinosaurs had to evolve to compete with this group so it's really bizarre that this happened so many times and also at least three instances that evolved within a very small period of time geologically speaking of course you know it's like within 30 million years which I know to most people is an enormous amount of time but to us geologists and paleontologists we're like "Eh, it's not that much time Uh, but yeah to be honest I, I I'm a bit stumped
2: You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and our stories today were produced by me, Caitlin Hobbs, Eliza Lomas and Tom Bonnet. We'll be back next week with the final episode of the current series, and we've tracked down some great stories to see us off. Using drones, helicopters, radio satellite collars and microphones pointed at the sky. Next week, it's all about finding things. Things that often don't want to be found. Join us then.